enemies, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 42 podcast about learning to play competitively that gives you tips and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am your host as always, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me from the left, Shaylin Allen, our good podcast host. Always? I've hosted when you haven't been here. Always. <laughs> Sadly, we are missing Josh, but we have with us instead a Mr. JT, one of our local players from the Northwest. Hello, folks. How are we all this evening? I think we're all doing pretty good. I'm swell. Yeah, we're finally getting past that the really awful parts of the Northwest spring and uh, starting to clear up into some decent weather again, at least where we are. I don't know about your section of things. Uh, slightly cooler, but definitely way more sunny. Yeah. I, I will say we are heading into the dreaded air quality season we get every year. I mean, air quality season is basically all weeks of the year for you, so... Eh. Yeah, sad but true. So, one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit recently, because I've been working on getting some, well, not exactly new armies, but uh, adding more stuff to armies I otherwise haven't played a whole lot of, is the 40k fiction and kind of the role it plays in the game. That is the thing that hooked me, I'll be honest. It is for a lot of people. Uh, I don't know about JT, but certainly it's something that draws a lot of players in, and it's it's the fiction and the sort of the lore behind it that is a big draw for people. Yeah, that dichotomy that exists in the 40k universe from the happy, happy stories of hope to the grim, dark nastiness is, is so much fun to flip-flop between them depending on what mood you feel like. I, I really enjoy the fiction part of the universe. Yeah, and also the, the satirical elements and a lot of that. I think there's a lot to be said for just the lore of 40k as a whole. Oh yeah, well the other thing is it's super open-ended, so you're building the lore as you do it. And I really like that aspect of it because it's, it's yours too. And that's actually what had struck me the most. And it's something that I noticed when I played other games that did not have quite as much, um, let's say, open space as 40k. Because, you know, the advantage to 40k is you have literally an entire galaxy. And only very small portions of it have ever been defined by GW. There are maybe a hundred named Space Marine chapters out of the, the official lore says that there's over a thousand of them in total. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a handful of planets, a couple dozen Imperial Guard regiments, what GW has given us is actually very small in comparison to what's out there, which means that the individual players have a lot of room to dictate whatever kind of lore they want, make up whatever stories they want, without having any real danger of running into GW and contradicting something. Yeah. And I noticed this especially in contrast to games like War Machine or Malifaux or something, where yeah. you're playing in a fairly small, enclosed space. If you're playing War Machine, you know, you technically have a whole world, but most of the chunks of that world are already pretty well delineated. So you can't, like, add an entirely new force that represents something fundamentally unique in the context of that world. Yeah, and that's the other cool thing about 40k, is they can always just add another Xenos race or something. Sure. Um, it's presumed that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of unnamed Xenos races out there that we just never really hear about because they're not big enough to have, like, a an empire the size of the Eldar. Uh, but there must be thousands of races with a planet or four under their control, sort of like Proto-Tau, mm -hmm. uh, and you could easily model a force after any one of those. It's... It's really just kind of a, a very freeing thing, I've found, to be able to insert basically anything you want into the lore and have it be official-ish. Sometimes always... outright official, like Brand was one of my favorite inclusions in the sure. Space Wolf Codex. And that sort of thing is fairly common with Games Workshop. They've taken a lot of cues from the players as part of this, because you will, there are so many players who are going out and writing their own fiction that eventually, in some cases, becomes official. Yep. Yeah, they, they had a great um, tradition of adding in things that uh, people didn't necessarily know about. For example, Gazgul Mag Uruk Thraka is a corruption of Margaret Thatcher. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you've got Sly Marbo. I mean, come on, really? Yep. <laughs> but these little things and touches make narrative games especially fun because you can have a little fun and play with it and, and write your own little fiction as broad or as narrow as you want mm -hmm. and really 
really explore that with your friends and, and your local gaming groups. It's kind of, it's a, it's a cool way they've done it. And if, if something doesn't make sense, oh, well, it's the warp. Yeah. There's that aspect of the freedom too. It's like there's, you can rationalize literally almost anything happening in the context of 40k, which does make it a very open-ended universe. That's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Although that is not really maybe particularly relevant to the main topic of our week here, which is tournaments. I will say it's semi-relevant because I remarked that's how I got into this. And then we were going to follow the story of how Shaylin turned it on in a it's funny true. way. Most people do lead into tournaments and competitive play through the fluffier aspects of the hobby, be they the lore, the modeling, or what have you. But uh, that's not really the subject of, of what we're talking about here because it is very hard to make a good podcast about, say, painting <laughs> as it is entirely a non-visual medium. This week we are talking about tournaments, and in particular, the the tips and tricks and strategies that you can use to make going to a tournament easier. Because a lot of people are very intimidated by tournaments, I think. I've met a lot of people who say, like, oh, I don't know I could go to a tournament. I just, I just, you know, I'm not really good enough, or I think it would be too frightening, or I don't know anyone... And not to, like, delegitimize that kind of player, but I I don't think it's as difficult as they often make it out to be. A lot of people are very quick to make excuses for themselves rather than face a change. Absolutely. And I don't Uh, mean that in a bad way, that's just being human. Yeah. Shaylin started out tournaments in, I think, what is not an uncommon kind of pathway, uh, and what is honestly fairly similar to the way I did as well. Yes, I had multiple guys nagging me to show up at one of the local RTTs. Yes. I think someone asked me for a ride, which is how I wound up actually getting off my butt and doing it. Yeah. What was what was your kind of, like, intro to the tournament experience like? Uh, you know, way, way back in the day, I used to play Battletech in tournaments. Oh. Ah. That was my tabletop gateway drug, if you will. Yep. And really loved that level of competition. I mean, the rule set is a little firmer in scope than, than Warhammer is. Yeah, definitely a different animal. Yeah, but it's that's kind of what started it, and that that idea of competition. I mean, I also used to play a lot of sports. Oh, okay. Which is why my nickname is now Painkiller, <laughs> because I have to take them to stand around for twelve hours to play forty k. Yeah. But the competition aspect—that's what I really enjoyed. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. And that kind of drew me to it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever your reason may be, because there's there's lots of different reasons to be want to go to tournaments, whether they be the competition or the social experience, or uh, if you just want to see what it's like and kind of dip your toe in the water there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I would recommend to new people is that it's not as hard as you think. There's different stages to the tournament experience, and you don't necessarily have to jump in the deep end right away. No. So, for context, my first RTT consisted of completely players I already knew in a game store I'd already been in multiple times. Yes. And I think that is probably the typical experience for most people, is you start with an RTT that is a rogue trader tournament in the old parlance, no longer means anything, but it basically refers to these sort of one-day, like, three-round events that you typically see. Yes. Most Local stores will have some sort of event like that, and that's a great way to start out kind of like beginning on tournaments. We're going to focus a little bit more on larger events because pretty much anyone can go to an RTT and not really struggle with it. Like Shaylin kind of mentioned, it's like it's a store you've probably been to, it's players you probably know. It's it's not particularly difficult or stressful to do that. Yeah, but it does give you the whole, well, this is what three rounds of 40k in a row feels like, and that is definitely something to open your eyes to. Yes. As JT just alluded to with the painkiller nickname. <laughs> yes, we'll we'll probably talk a little more about that in a minute here, because that's a, a pretty important part of things. But you know, starting out like this is a good way to get yourself this sort of intro to 40k and see how you feel about it and what it is you enjoy about things. If you want to take the babies to baby steps, the next way would be to go to a store that you're less familiar to, but is still relatively local to you. So at least you're playing with slightly different players, still an RTT. You can leave halfway through and not feel like you've wasted any money or time. Yes. Very often uh, there will be a couple stores in any significant metropolitan area. Then GTs are distinctly different animals, mostly because they're two-day events. Right. And you probably had to travel because I doubt there's one in your hometown unless you live in, like, New York. 
it's not uncommon to have a GT in a major city, but probably only one, mm-hmm. and it may not be the correct time of year or place or whatever. Something else I wanted to kind of, like, talk about a bit and dispel is the myth of tournament players. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure you've both heard a lot of this. The sort of, like, win-it-all-cost asshole tournament player that everyone is just absolutely terrified that they're going to run into. So I'm going to make a little side. Win-it-all-costs is the W-A-A-C acronym for those people who don't know what that means. Yeah, I- so, I don't know, let me let me ask the two of you, because my tournament experience may have been a little different from yours. Uh, have you ever actually run into this guy? Yes. Yes. Okay. Each time was at LVO, and these were all of the LVO games I hated. Oof, okay, that's, that's rough. JTU is a yes from you as well, huh? Yeah, I've run into that guy on occasion, um, <clears throat> and to be quite honest, that girl on occasion. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Okay. And it's nine times out of ten, um, it was typically because they didn't quite get the purpose of playing the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't matter. They wanted to throw dice. And I think yeah, the rarity, though, I mean, I just TO'd the Wet Coast GT a few weeks back there, mm-hmm. and we had one person out of 250 players across games that was an issue. So one out of 250 tournament goers, that was an actual issue. So they're not, they're not out there. Like, they're not out there, like, all the time, but they're out there. You just got to watch out. Yeah. As I said, I went through an entire year's worth of tournaments, so we're talking over 20 pushing 30 tournaments, and LVO is the place where these people show up. They can. For for me personally, I'm not dissing LVO, but that is kind of the finale, so it makes sense that it brings out that side of players a little bit more likely. The Code of Conduct has helped a lot with that, because it basically says you're not allowed to be this way. Right. So, as JT says, be aware that they do exist. They're not entirely mythical unicorns, but 1 in 250 is a lot closer to my experience with the numbers. I, I could probably count the number of truly bad game experiences with because of a player interaction that I've had on one hand. Same. It is a very rare thing. The vast majority of tournament players are there to have a good time exactly like you are. And this also kind of plays into that whole, like, oh, I'm not good enough to go to tournaments. Most of the other people that you play at a tournament are also probably not, quote-unquote, good enough. Most players are average, strangely. It's like, that's what that word means. Yeah. <laughs> so if you feel you're afraid that you're just, oh, I'm not, I'm I'm going to go 0-3 or 0-5 and, and have a bad time... I mean, you might, but chances are much better that you're going to come in somewhere near the middle of the pack, because that is where most people come in. And even in the games you're losing, you can still have a good time. If you are worried about that kind of thing, it's just like, you don't really need to be. It's it's not going to be an issue, because you're going to find a lot of people of your stripe playing at tournaments. You know, the vast majority of folks at a tournament have no chance of winning it and are there because they enjoy playing games. Yeah. I go to 40k tournaments mostly to have an excuse to hang out with like-minded people and play a couple games of a game I like to play. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, logistics of actually like going to a tournament, because I think that's another thing that can be a little intimidating to people. Tournaments can be a pretty expensive affair if you let them, mm-hmm. but they don't have to be. No. Part of it is, number one tip I will give and have given before and will continue to give, is find people to travel with, because you can split costs. Yes. I mean, traveling with one other person basically cuts your costs in half. We talked about this in the Teams episode, but if you are having to drive, not only does it cut the cost, it also means you don't have to do the drive by yourself. If you are traveling by air or train or whatnot, it means you have someone else there to kind of help cover all of the, like, watching your luggage and that kind of stuff. It makes a really big difference just to have someone with you. And I can say, as someone with a different mental situation, I have had Sean basically be the reason I got home successfully from tournaments more than once. Mm -hmm. It covers all your bases when you're kind of feeling shitty, which can be really useful. I imagine for JT, it's also actually fairly useful in terms of just like the, the logistics of travel and lodging, all that kind of thing as well. Oh, for sure. It's super important to have a, a partner of some kind uh, with you. Um, heading to BAO here with with my wife and son, actually. So we're going to oh, yeah. 
they're going to do San Francisco and it's going to be nice to to actually come back from a tournament day exhausted and be with my family. I mean, yeah. talk about a mental recharge because um, most of the time I'm stuck in a hotel room missing them or calling them or Skyping them. Right. And you know what? It, it kind of sucks, man. I mean, you yeah. you want to be with them. You're away from them. You you feel like, sure, you can go out with the, the group and have a couple of beverages or whatever, but just having them nearby is so incredibly relaxing. So mm-hmm. having a partner, having a team, having a group to travel with, not to say that you spend the whole time with them, but yeah, you that that's a huge, huge part of that, that mental um, marathon recharge that you need uh, when you're when you're doing these big events, yeah, mm-hmm. and the mental part of it is very easy to overlook, but it's actually really big. Traveling to tournaments is exhausting, both in a physical sense, but also in a mental sense. You have what to navigate. You have to be on time. Yep. It turns out just being rattled in a car for hours just burns on you. Yes, and having someone else can make that a lot easier. Whether it is a travel partner to sort of take the stress of driving off whether it is your life partner who is there to kind of like be there for you at the end of the day and have someone to unwind with and relax there. We talk about like travel partners in the sense of, uh, you know, people who are going to the tournament with you. But as JT points out, like having someone who just go to the event but is not in any way part of the event can also be very useful. Oh, no, I've hauled hauled my boyfriend around. That's been wonderful. Mm -hmm. He really likes going with me. And a lot of the bigger events, especially as you get up towards your, your BAOs and LVOs and whatnot, are held in major cities where it's like, yeah, you can probably find something for them to do for the weekend like that. There's going to be something for them to go to that they want to see there. Underground black-like mini-golf? Sure. <laughs> or museums or shows of their own that they're interested in. There's, there's going to be something. So we already kind of touched on the travel aspect a little bit, but obviously that that counts for a lot. The lodging aspect is another one that can actually be one of the most expensive parts of a tournament. Yeah. Many tournaments are held in hotels. Staying at the hotel can be a good option because it keeps you close to the event. It means you don't have to drive back and forth or any of that. But if you are looking at reducing your costs somewhat, Crashing with someone else who is going there can make it a lot easier. I've stayed in a room with five or six other people before. It certainly brings the cost down quite a bit. Yes, I stayed in a room with four strangers and one guy I kind of knew once. Yep. Obviously, that is only more of an option if you were kind of living the bachelor or bachelorette lifestyle. Your wife or husband probably does not want to crash in a room with six strangers. But, you know, at that point, you're already splitting the cost down further if you're staying with, you know, your significant other and several kids. So that is a kind of a, a different approach to things there. But staying with a bunch of people in a hotel room... Or at an Airbnb, which can also be significantly cheaper. Or if you have friends in the area. Yeah. Uh, Couches. Yep. Or beds, depending on how nice your friends are. <laughs> You're not necessarily having to be uncomfortable in order to go to a tournament. There are a lot of options in a variety of price ranges that you can co- kind of pick and choose based on what's going to work for you, both in a, a physical and budgetary sense. Yes. Another thing is uh, food, because there are some types of foods, such as pizza, for prime example here, that are shared foods. And shared foods are super efficient for feeding lots of people. Yep. And also, uh, as JT mentioned, that kind of like going out for food and drinks with folks afterwards, that can be nice, but it can also get expensive fairly quick. So, you know, have some consideration for what you're doing. Uh, Shailen and I often pack along a lunch because sandwiches are cheaper than fast food. Yes, and healthier. Quite a bit, yes. And that's actually a really big one, because that's something not a lot of people actually spend all that much time thinking about, but the food you eat is going to have a significant effect on how you feel for that tournament weekend. Mm -hmm. We had one tournament where we were really packed for time because it was four or five rounds every day of the tournament, except for the final one, which was merely four rounds. Uh, That was a brutal weekend. So we were doing things like, you know, rolling in at 6 a.m. and rolling out at 11. We ate Jack in the Box, which was right next to the venue, five times that weekend. And I'll tell you what, we did not feel so hot afterwards. You can only be young and stupid so many times. Yes. (laughs) 
so think about what it is, what it is you're eating and what kind of food you're bringing along. Often benefits you a lot to bring food with you if that's an option, and and try and make it at least vaguely pretend healthy. It doesn't have to be all vegan, salt-free, natural, whatever, but, you know, maybe, like, bring a piece of fruit or something like that, rather than just chomping down burgers for four days. I'll also say the advantage to Airbnb is usually they have kitchens, so that means you can cook. Potentially, yeah. Uh, if you have someone who's willing to cook after 12 hours of 40k, which is a different problem. Right. And then the last thing that I want to kind of throw in on the the fiscal side of stuff is buying new models and stuff like that. A lot of players get caught up in chasing the meta, kind of like, oh, I've got to bring a different army every single time. And there's something to be said for that if you're really, like, sitting at the, the highest tiers of competition. But also there's something to be said for just kind of, like, sticking with the same army and getting to know it better. Mm-hmm. You don't have to buy a whole new army every time you go to a tournament. No. And also you can just, again, team, borrow models. Yes. You don't need to be spending a lot to be chasing your whatever army it is you play. Because, honestly, that can be a huge expense if you let it be, but that's only an expense in so much as you do let it be. Because I know people who played this, basically the same army for a year or two straight. And, like, they switch out a few models here and there, but not a lot. I have been one of those people, but well, admittedly yes. my army only lets me build certain levels. Well, yeah, but most people tend to stick to a, a, a small handful of things. So if you've already invested in those things, you don't necessarily have to spend very much on models or any of that sort of thing. Now that we've talked about taking care of your budget, let's talk about the arguably more important thing, which is taking care of yourself at a tournament. Because this is going to have a huge effect on how you feel about the tournament and how you feel after the tournament. Hey, JT, do you want to start this off? Sure. It's so important to make sure that you take care of your needs like shoes, socks, water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Snacks, because you're not the same general when you're hungry. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to make sure to have all of the things that are going to make you successful every day. You need to make sure that they're with you at a tournament because you're often traveling. Yes. And... You know, it's okay to carry a little backpack with all the stuff in it that you need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you have special requirements, you know, make sure that the TO knows it. I remember playing at a GT event, and I was four weeks after a knee replacement surgery. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And I had a an ice machine that was fantastic because it would just recirculate cold water. Oh, yeah. The concierge staff at the hotel kept refilling it with ice. The TO brought a great big uh, extension cord that I could plug in wherever I was. And the only reason I could finish that event was because they wanted to work with me to make sure that I could enjoy the game. So it's important to make sure you, you talk about some of the requirements that you have. Yeah. Just like at the table when you're with your opponent, talk to the people that you're with. Talk to, talk to the TOs. Talk to the event staff. And, and they'll, be, they'll usually go out of the way to help you. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, as someone who's autistic, uh, the first couple years I was playing tournaments, I would actually contact the TO and vets to say, I'm autistic. You need to know this. Occasionally, I just fail my social check and things blow up on me. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to cause a social incident at your tournament, but I have a higher probability than most people of doing it on accident. Yeah. And if you can talk to them about this stuff in advance, even if it's just like the morning of the tournament, they're going to be a lot more willing to accommodate you than if you come to them after something's happened and say like, hey, you know, I couldn't finish my game because my legs hurt. So you you actually need to give me the win, not the other guy. No, that's never going to fly. No, never. But if you talk to them beforehand and you say like, hey, I can't stand up for two hours straight. Can you put me somewhere where I can make sure to be able to get off my feet or where I have access to an extension cord or whatever it is you need, they're going to probably be a lot more willing to accommodate you. I broke my leg. Sean, ever going to go to a tournament with me on the knee scooter. And I talked to the TO and he's like, I said, I can't do upstairs. And he says, I'll make it happen. Mm -hmm. Because they usually are very interested in making the tournament work for everyone involved. Like these are people who share the hobby with you, who may know you personally, and if not personally, may know you by reputation. Yeah. And they're usually perfectly happy to do whatever they can to make it a good tournament experience. Because that, that's what TOs want for you, is they want you to enjoy their tournament. That's why they run the events. Yes. Also, on the note of good things in and out, be aware of your alcohol intake. A lot of people like to drink yeah. at tournaments. 
Crunked Ben stories are hilarious, but Crunked Ben is not a happy person day too. Yeah, and that's kind of like a personal choice on some level. Is like you got to decide like what it is you consider okay, but you also should probably moderate yourself at a certain point because a, a tournament is not the same as going out bar hopping with your friends. And if you are so drunk you can't stand up round three, then it's not going to be a particularly great experience for you because you're not going to remember any of it. And it's not going to be a very good experience for your opponents because they're not seeing you at your best. No. Yes, Canadian beer is uh, 5.5% alcohol on average, upwards of 7, just as a just as a friendly PSA. Yeah, it's got <laughs> a little bit more kick to it than most American beers tend to. Or Pacific Northwest IPAs, Jeebus, those things run fast. Yes. Actually, something I wanted to, to come back on was JT mentioned standing up um, and oh, you know, yeah. being able to do that. It's like your shoes, like wear a decent pair of shoes because you're going to be standing a lot. Shaylin is going to be linking in the show notes some shoes on Amazon for types of shoes you're looking for. The term is professional shoe. These are for nurses who stand around on concrete all day. And you don't necessarily have to go that far with it, but... They do help so much, though. I'm not saying it's not useful. I'm just saying this is not a tournament requirement. Because, you know, some people may not have a hundred bucks to drop on a pair of shoes. But most people have 12 bucks they can drop on a pair of compression socks. Sure, those can be very useful for some folks. And there's also the super budget solution of just, like, remember to sit down. It's real easy to forget because you're, you're caught up in things, but when it's not your turn, sit down. Take off your aching dogs and just be not on your feet for a while because most tournaments are going to be probably a 10-hour day. And that hurts. But when you sit, please, please, please don't take your shoes off. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they smell. Your, your feet have been sweating. Yes. You might not think they do, but trust me, please leave your shoes on. <laughs> For that reason, and also because you're just going to be standing up again in a minute anyways, you know? You're, you're, a couple minutes makes a big difference, but it's going to be such a hassle. It's like, okay, now I need you to roll saves. It's like, oh, wait, I'm not ready. It's like, don't, don't do that to your opponent. Actually, that said, if you're a woman, high heels are not allowed. Just don't Oof, bother. No. Oh, couldn't imagine. That, hopefully that goes without saying. And also, uh, another thing JT kind of mentioned that I want to reemphasize is food and water. Mm -hmm. um, having just some, like, nice little snacks, even if it's just like a granola bar or something like that, can help a lot for in-between rounds. Mm -hmm. And I always have a water bottle with me because gaming is thirsty work you are talking constantly yeah last little kind of catch-all here is uh this is something we talked about a little bit before the show but some people need to take medication across country borders yeah mm -hmm. you need to know the rules for that and actually crossing borders in general is something you should be just a little bit more aware of if you need a passport if there are regulations concerning whatever it is you're taking across a lot of gaming supplies fall under kind of restricted categories flammable materials explosives knives things like that so be aware of what you need to take and what you are taking with you because i've seen a couple guys get caught as like they go through airport security with an exacto in there and you know what that doesn't fly so hot no also that said make sure you know things like the size of your gaming case versus the size of the overhead bins right is it gonna fit up there you don't want to check that thing suddenly yes. you probably didn't pack your models correctly and one other thing that I wish we didn't have to mention, but we do, is hygiene. Okay. Guys, I can smell you from across the room sometimes. Don't be that person. <laughs> yeah. And I get it. Like, again, gaming is hard work. You're going to sweat. It's going to be hot in there because you're going to have 60 nerds packed into what is probably a kind of small space. And it's going to be really close quarters. We shouldn't have to say this, but you need to take a shower every single day. And you're going to need to put on a significant amount of deodorant because you are going to be there for 10 or 12 hours. Just do your best. I get it. Like, some of us are not small people. You're probably not going to smell minty fresh by the end of the day, but try to make it bearable for everyone around you. Start the day clean, please. Yes. At conventions, they have what we call the one two, 4 rule. That means every single day, one shower, two meals, four hours of sleep. No exceptions. There you go. 
because sleep is honestly another one of those things that I see a lot of people saying like, yeah, I got like three hours of sleep last night. You're not going to play good on three hours of sleep. Well, sometimes it's this thing called insomnia, Sean, so I'm going to forgive people on that one. Some people can't get more sleep than that, but do what you can to get as much sleep as possible. So the last thing I want to kind of throw in here is talking to people at tournaments. Ah, yes. Because this is kind of a big thing and can also be kind of intimidating for folks, but I think it's something that deserves a little bit of attention. There's going to be a whole lot of people at tournaments and probably a lot of people you don't know. Don't be too intimidated by that. Because first of all, they're all just people like you. There are a whole bunch of other folks who enjoy this hobby. You have an innate connection with them, something that you both share in common. I have a trick. Yes. As someone with social anxiety and all sorts of other problems, mm -hmm. talk to them about their armies. Everyone has that in common, and I bet they're passionate about it. Yeah. I mean, people don't play an army unless they like it for some reason, so... They spent some amount of hours building and painting that thing. Yeah. There's probably an emotional investment at this point. They have something to say. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I usually find some model or some aspect of what their army has, is doing or how it looks and comment on it and compliment the, the player on that. And at that point, they'll talk your ear off. <laughs> Yes. Because, you know, it's it's important. If, if you're interested in what they have brought to the table, then then it just makes the whole interaction so much easier. It really does. Uh, I, I do a similar kind of thing. It's like there any army you look at, there's probably something interesting in there that you can make note of and probably find, like, legitimately interesting. Not even, like, fake complimenting, but just saying, like, for sure. I yeah. really like what you did with the wash on that model, or that's incredible, how did you get those decals on there, or whatever it may be. And that's a really easy avenue to start up a conversation with someone, no matter who they are, no matter how famous they are. Mm -hmm. Because, you know what, Nick Nadavati just comes to tournaments and wants to talk with people about Warhammer just like the rest of us. Yes. Brandon Grant and I had a long conversation about one of the infamous models in my army. I'll show a picture. Because he wanted to talk to me, so he asked me about it. Yeah. If you, you know, take the time to talk to people and have conversations with them and kind of make yourself known, then people will start to know who you are as you go to tournaments. And it's a very reciprocal sort of thing. Yeah, and then people will start waving and saying hi and sometimes running over and glomping you if you, they know you're one of those people that accept glomps. Yes. It really is just sort of like, you know, they're nerds just like you who want to have a conversation. As you get to know them and become a part of the community, you will start to enjoy events a lot more. We talked a little bit mm -hmm. about the social aspect before, but it is it is one of the biggest things that draws people back to tournaments, is you get to see friends and people you know. Mm -hmm. Before our quartermaster gets too angry at us, we are going to call a close to the first half of things here, since we are already late, and we will catch you all on the second half with talking about the process of tournamenting itself. Spoiler alert, Sean is most likely getting four demerits. Boo. West Area Gamers, if you're looking for a major ITC event happening in the later end of the year here, think about Stumptown Stomp. It's a charity event, and at only $55, the majority of which does go to charity, you can get in for two full days of gaming on November 16th and 17th, and it comes with a potluck lunch on the first day of the event. There are a variety of prizes, raffled as well as awarded for both painting, sportsmanship, overall, and generalship. So come on down to Guardian Games and give it a spin. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! Let me tell you about this amazing tournament I went to last year. It was the Boardroom Brawl GT in Grand Forks, Canada. This year, they're doing it again, August 3rd and 4th. It includes a post-game barbecue on Saturday, which is the best social thing ever. Also, fantastic terrain that is just super cool and kooky and engaging and some of the most finest players you will ever meet. Totally worth the trip to Canada for. Please go, guys.
So, we are back, and you were wrong. I got five demerits, not four. I was trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, my friend. That is usually a bad option. Uh, but speaking of benefit of the doubt, let's talk a little bit about player interactions and, and how to kind of approach your opponent at the game table. Ah, yes. This is something that can be an issue. You are playing in a competitive environment. You're you're going to have a competitive interaction, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a negative interaction. This isn't a situation where only one of you gets to have fun. So when you come into that the tournament experience, like do give that other player the benefit of the doubt that they are trying to play a good game just like you are, because the vast majority of people are. There's that one in 250 people who might be a little bit of an asshole, but the vast majority of people are just trying to come in and play a good game just like you are. In fact, I actually start my games with a little spiel where I come in and the very first thing I say is, here's who I am. I want to have a great game with you no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. And I play by intent and I do these other things. And I just lay out all of my shenanigans on the table in advance. Mm -hmm. So I avoid these problems and I've just made a routine out of it and my games go way smoother now. Yeah, I typically do try to iron out any problems in advance. If there's anything you think that could be an issue, like, hey, there's this rules interpretation you may not be aware of this is how I play it, is this the way you do it as well, or if it's terrain is another big one. Yep, um, step zero. Yes, it's it's really all about anticipating these problems before they start coming up. I actually go even, even one step further because um, my Drakari army has a lot of conversion, converted models in it. Oh, yeah. And I'll walk my opponent through it. I'll give them my list and walk them through. So this is this, mm -hmm. and this is this, and these guys can do this, and these guys can do this. That way, when my opponent yeah. suddenly sees you know something fall back from combat and then charge back in again, he's not going to go, hey, how come that happened? Well, I did explain that to you at the beginning of the game. Yeah. And also ask him, you know, if you, you know, it's so important. If you have any questions at any time, please ask me, and I will tell you what's going on. It's a big part of it. And this is a small little modeling tip, but in Grey Knights, all of my individual squads can have different psychic powers. I have rimmed my bases different colors, so you can, you and my opponent can know exactly where the psychic powers are at any moment. Yes. And I would actually say that that is one of the things that is going to solve the most problems before they happen is ask your opponent if they have any questions and be ready to explain everything. Mm-hmm and be clear in your explanations, but at the same time, ask them if you have any questions. Don't sit on it and wait. It's just like, well, I assume that whatever he just did there is fine. Like, if you're not sure, just say, like, hey, what did, what did you just do there? I don't, I don't know what rule that was. I'm going to go from something I learned in college. A stupid question is a question you neglected to ask and then later bites you in the butt. Yeah. Don't ask stupid questions. Hmm. Or... In this case, not ask a question. Yeah, and that goes for army lists, special rules, stratagems, all that kind of thing. Just never never be afraid to say, like, hey, what rule is doing that? May I see that in your codex? By the same token, when you're having a rules dispute or something like that, the first thing you should do when you are, like, not sure how a rule interacts is read what the text actually says. Yes. Because 95% of rules interactions are actually solved right there in the text of the rule. Mm -hmm. You're like, well, it says that I can do this when I shoot. It's like, actually, what it says is, before shooting with that unit, do this thing. By the time you're shooting, it's already no longer an issue. And that is super, super common. Yeah, another thing to add, too, is if you are at an impasse with an opponent and your interpretations are, are at odds, do not be afraid to call a judge over and do not look upon it negatively. Yeah. That's what the judges are there for. It's not because this guy doesn't like you or this player is a jerk. It's because we can't figure out how to rule this and we're going to give it to the person who whose job for this tournament is to do that and then they're going to make the ruling. You need to accept that judge's ruling even if you don't like it, mm -hmm. but that's what the judge is there for. It's not a knock on a player. It's not a negative. It's not a bad thing. They're there because, let's face it, sometimes English be hard. <laughs> yeah. And we make mistakes with reading. So it's important to recognize that judges are there to help. Mm -hmm. I asked judges to add up my scores once because I couldn't math at the end of a six-round event. Yeah, 
the judge's job is literally to adjudicate disputes. Like, that's why they exist. And most of the time, you don't need them, but when you do, that, that's just, like, taking advantage of part of the service of the tournament. Yes. Also, if you do start escalating with your opponent, what I do is I take a literal step back, mm -hmm. and I kind of put my hands down in a calming manner, and I say, I don't want this to get any more heated than it is. Can you help me find a way to de-escalate this? Because don't tell someone to be calm, it usually makes them mad. <laughs> right. You say that, they're usually willing to help you calm down. Yeah, because most people don't want to fight. They want a good tournament experience, just like you do. But, to follow on to that, there are people who will take advantage of you if you let them. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't let them just because you are new to a tournament or may not know a rule or something like that. So, again, don't be afraid to ask. Like, say, like, hey, what is the rule that allows you to do that? Or if they're measuring something and they say, oh, I should be in range, and you just say, can you check? Yeah. Uh, Jeff Robinson has a whole spiel on this that he's given on Chapter Tactics a couple times, and I think he puts it far better than I ever could. But it really just boils down to don't be afraid to stand up for yourself in a polite and firm manner. And, and both of those are equally important. Yes. Please is an amazingly impressive word for keeping tempers cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if you say, like, I'm not sure you're within 36 inches, can you measure that for me? And if he says, well, I'm sure, I don't worry, I just, I'm, I know I am, then you just say, wait. Do I, you mind if I measure I, it? Right, it's, I suspect you are, but I just want to be sure. You shouldn't feel bad about adhering to the rules and all that sort of thing in a fair manner. Yeah. You may not be friends with your opponent at the end of the game. That's okay. Sure. You, you, yeah, you may not have a great interaction with everyone, but hopefully you don't come away from it hating them. Yeah. Also give your opponents in Kerosy, if you come in pre-tilted from your last game for whatever reason, usually yeah. self-frustration in my case, I give my opponent that forewarning. It's like, I am trying to be as clean as slate as possible as for you, but I can't manage it. I remember that actually at LVO a couple years ago. You had an atrocious round five. Yeah. At, with a player who was just outright abusive, and... We walked into round six, and we both kind of looked at each other and went, ah, well, sod it. Let's have some fun and have a goofy game. And we had an absolute riot. Probably my favorite round at that event that year, because we just had fun and played kind of silly and <laughs> didn't really care too much about the results. No. Yeah. And that's going to be a lot of your tournament games. When you're two and two at the end of a tournament, you know you're not winning anything, and you come into round five. Have a good time with your opponent. Because, yeah. you know, neither of you is in the running for anything. So just have a good time, meet someone new, and enjoy the game. Yeah, no. I, I've had a lot of rounds where it's like, all right, our warlords are going to go duel it out. It does not matter about the mission. Yeah. And don't be afraid to have fun like that at a tournament. Not every game has to be a cutthroat competition. If that's not what you want, don't try and play for that. Just You shouldn't feel obligated to just because you are at a tournament. Because a tournament can be whatever kind of experience you want it to be. Exactly. And it can be competitive until you realize you're out of the running, in which case it should be as fun as possible. Mm -hmm. Or both. Yeah. Absolutely. You can have fun and be competitive at the same time, it turns out. I mean, I would argue that we play competitive games because we think we, they are fun. That is an aspect <laughs> of the hobby many of us enjoy. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the aids and tools that can help you a lot at a tournament, because I think there are a lot of these that, you know, aid your gameplay uh, that may not be things that players use as much in more casual games. The number one, and the one that I shudder to see players not have, is an army tray. Yes, you gotta take your army from one table to another between rounds, and moving squads handful at a time is just not possible. Don't do that. Don't be the guy who has to unpack their army every single round. You will waste so much time that way. Oh, yes. Unless it's a warlord titan? Okay, yeah, but that's not really an army. That's a joke in waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, an army tray is... It can help you organize things. It can also function as a display board in many cases. Yeah. It's such a useful thing to have that even if all you have is a fast food tray to carry your guys on, that is still going to make your life a hundred times easier. It honestly prevents a lot of damage to your models as well. Oh, yeah. Those guys like getting jostled around because you stuck them in a big pile, it's going to chip away at the paint and kind of ruin the work you put in. 
here's a slick thing. A lot of people magnetize their bases, get a metal army tray like a cooking sheet. It's fantastic. I admit I'm personally not a huge fan of that because I find the magnets tend to click together and then your whole army becomes one big barrel of monkeys. But that is a personal preference. There's definitely some value in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another trick, and this is something I started using because I can 3D print myself things, is measuring tools and movement trays. Yeah. And what I mean by movement tray is like a tray that basically puts a whole squad together. And it's like, I use that half the time for just putting my squad back together so I can redeploy it faster the next game. Mm-hmm. Anything that speeds your game up is is going to be a huge help. I know a lot of tournaments are actually giving away like the 9-inch measuring or 6-inch measuring stick as prizes these days, aren't they? Yeah, those things are super handy. Because yeah, I got a personalized one at Wet Coast, which is pretty snazzy. <laughs> Thanks, JT. Yeah. Yeah, somebody you know, somebody you know might have had something to do with that. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's and and you can often get neat little things like that. A lot of tournaments give away these things cuz they're not necessarily very expensive, but they might not be something that you have easy access to otherwise. So just like having that little thing and getting that can be one of the great takeaways from a tournament. Also, like for example, when I was learning Tau, I just had a bunch of reference note cards cuz it's like I don't remember what the stat line on this gun is yet. Yes. A reference sheet of some kind can be very useful if you are relatively new to an army or using units or whatnot that you're not used to. Mm-hmm. For example, the full battle scribe printout for your use and the short one for your opponent to read. Yes. Don't give your opponent a full battle scribe printout. That is, it, it should be considered a war crime. Uh, that is a definite yellow card violation at most events, I'm certain. <laughs> yeah. On the, actually, on the subject of cards, one of the ones I find the most helpful is Psychic Power cards. Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy to forget which unit did I cast it on this turn, and who knows what power, and all that kind of thing. And I find that the Psychic Power cards, either the Games Workshop ones, or just like homemade ones, do homemade ones because they are nice and cheap, are super helpful for that sort of thing. One of the things I personally helped someone with was their Knight Castellan, as he made little tokens for all the Castellan guns, and he just set those out on the table so he'd remember where he put the guns. Yep, a lot of those little like physical aids like that can be hugely useful because the the mental part of the game is big and like any time you can produce that mental load that makes a big difference. On that concept of of splitting up your guns etc, I use different colored dice to do that. Sure. So when I'm declaring targets, all right, so the green dice are going to be the the dark lances, the red dice are the this, the oogie white dice are that. Mm-hmm. And that way we know exactly what's shooting where and it, it helps, it speeds it up because then I can grab all of those dice and I can roll it and keep it consistent the whole game. Mm-hmm. Green dice are always going to be dark lances for the entire game. Purple dice are always going to be blasters for the entire game, whatever it might be. So your opponent gets used to that very quickly and then you can quickly roll your dice and targeting and move on. Yes. Yeah. Also, if you're picking up your dice and re-rolling them for whatever reason, just announce the rule you're using so your opponent knows it's coming from somewhere. Yeah. Clarity and consistency are your two big virtues at a tournament like this. Every time you tell them, you know, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it, that makes things much easier for them. Yeah. Grandmaster nearby, re-rolling the ones. Yep. Doesn't um, have to be complicated. To JT's point about, you know, setting the dice next to them, like, that can be very helpful because then they can sort of see the physical representation. And there's no argument later of, like, wait, I thought you were doing it over here. It's like, no, the dice were sitting next to this unit. (laughs) And you knew where they were going. Exactly. Along those lines, point trackers, you know, whether they be for command points or victory points or whatever. Some tournaments will give you a score sheet. Others do not. That kind of varies by event and format. Uh, Mm -hmm. Having something to keep track of that in a very visible way that both you and your opponent can see is super helpful. Wound counters. Don't don't be the guy who keeps track of his wounds on a notebook he hides on his side of the table out of line of sight. Yeah, not okay. (laughs) Also, if you are going to use dice to track wounds, which a lot of people do, very common, make sure they're not the same as the dice you're rolling. Because I've seen way too many people, you know, gather up all their dice from the table for a big roll. And it's like, hey, didn't that guy have three wounds on him? Oh, I, I don't know. I um, I actually have dice with pips that I roll and then dice with numerals that mark all of the wounds on my, my vehicles and units. Perfect. That way it's very, very clear and can't get accidentally picked up. Yes. 
my opponent can look. And and another thing too is make sure you're consistent with how you're counting those wounds. Are you counting up? Yeah. Yeah. Or are you counting down? I mean, I, I always count down. So you look at the dice. That's what's remaining on that unit. Mm-hmm. It's it's super important. Another thing on score, just to jump back there real quick. Both of you need to keep score. It's so important in a tournament that you both need to keep score. I've had guys say, oh, well, no, you keep track. And I'm thinking, you know what? Uh, no, because I don't want to be responsible for missing something that you should have caught. And then we get to an argument on turn four where, no, I had this on turn two. Well, show me on your score sheet because we only have mine. And, and I'm sorry, but we're going to have to go with mine because this is the score sheet. But So always, always keep track of your own score and confirm with your opponent after every turn. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, super, super important. That's yeah. that's another place where communication is really important because it turns out the score is really important. So whenever you do that end of turn scoring for your ITC missions or whatnot, say, okay, you got one on line breaker and then you got kill more and hold more. And they'll say, oh, no, I didn't get kill more. Then, you know, that's, that's where you double checking with them and you know what's going on. So you're both on the same page. Yes. By the way, over communicating is better than under communicating. Yes. And sometimes it can take a little more time. It's understandable if you do, like, you gotta skimp somewhere if you're trying to make things quick. But especially at the beginning of the game, you need to be making sure you over-communicate so they know what's going on. And then you can dial it back a little bit. It's like the seventh time you're like, okay, re-rolling to hit, re-rolling once. Oh yeah, sure, because you got the guy nearby, because they've seen you do it every other time. Yes. Uh, They don't don't need it the 35th time, but the first time, you better tell them why you're re-rolling once. Mm-hmm. Another thing that can be very useful, uh, I really like using a dice box because it helps contain all those dice that fly every which way. Many other players have started using the GW or even non-GW dice apps for very large rolls. That can also be a huge time saver. Yeah. I think that covers most of the sort of uh, physical aids to the game that are going to like make your gameplay go more smoothly what sort of like mental aids do you guys have that you find make going through a tournament a lot simpler for a player there's a couple first is know the missions like have read the tournament packet in advance or at least similar packets if you're going to an itc champs event reading the packet from bao will basically give you expectations for any itc event if they're running standard itc wholly and I'm sure that JT is running this one. Like, nobody ever reads the packet. Please, everyone, read the packet. Yes. Last thing is, you should know your stuff, or at least have a quick reference thing to, like, aid you with that. So, I know that my guys shoot on three ups. I don't have to look it up. Yeah, I would say that if you are going to a tournament, you should at least know how your army functions. I don't want to try and, like, gatekeep anyone out of this, but... You really do need to know how your own rules work. You don't have to have them perfect. Maybe you need to refer to stuff, but if you're needing to check the ballistic skill on every unit in your army, then you're going to have a really slow game. Yeah. Now, if it's like, oh, I brought in this new unit I've never played with recently, I brought in their data sheet and stat line because I don't have it memorized yet, that's okay. But if that's the case with 90% of your units, that's a different problem. Right. Standard output format is also now a thing for army lists, Mm -hmm. because we have this sort of ITC standard that is really just the battle scribe standard. You should know how to read that, so when your opponent hands you an army list, you are not left completely in the dark. Mm -hmm. And also, don't go into the tournament expecting to go beat out Grand and Grant Nick Nadavati. Statistically, you're not. Yeah, let's actually talk a little bit about expectations and sort of player expectations for tournaments. If you, if this is your first time in a tournament, you're not going to win the tournament. I'm sorry, mm. but you're not. Um, no matter how small that tournament is, if you don't have any experience, you are probably not going to come out on top. Yeah. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you should expect to just lose every single game. No. You can come into the tournament and sort of like come in with reasonable expectations because... If you think you're just going to do really poorly, you probably will, because you're not going to be trying. But if your expectation is, I'm going to go in and play five games and have fun, that's a good expectation for a tournament. That one's easy to get, by the way. Yes. So manage your expectations and what it is you want out of the tournament. Because if you really boil it down and ask yourself, winning the tournament is probably not the thing you want the most. And you know what? Make those expectations realistic as well. Yeah. Yes. 
example. I mean, if if you genuinely believe that your pure crimson fist army, sorry, Steve, <laughs> is going to win more games than it loses, you need to to modify that somewhat when you when you see what you're playing against. You can be the best player in the world, but if your list or your army or your matchups and your draws aren't there, you know, there's so many things working against you. You just got to be realistic with managing your expectations. Mm-hmm. It's okay to lose. It's the best teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've lost more times than I can, than I care to tell you, to be quite honest. <laughs> oh yeah. But I've learned from those losses. So manage those expectations and make them realistic. That is so important. It really is because your expectations are going to shape your whole tournament experience. If you say like, "Oh, I should win this," don't should yourself out of having fun. The last thing that I think really is going to catch a lot of people, and it's something that I see far too many people run into, is time. Yep. Time Uh, is huge at tournaments. So this is one of those pre-practicing, practice your games, time them. Chess clocks are good for, like, figuring out how long you're taking, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and try out some games with chess clocks. They're not that scary. They're not really all that hard to use. Just get used to the effort of working with them. Because you probably take a lot more time on your games than you think, and in tournaments, time is at a premium. If you only get to turn three on all of your games, then that's not a good thing. You really want to try and be playing a full game if you possibly can. Yeah. Play quickly. It's fine to talk. By all means, have a great chat with that guy, but do it after you've finished your game. Yeah, and a note on that, too. If if you're one of these players that are bringing 300 models to the table... Ooh. Yeah. Maybe you don't bring 300 models to a tournament. It's not just you that's playing, it's your opponent that's playing. And if you can't play that army in an adequate amount of time, I mean, most rounds at 2,000 points are three hours. So if you can't play your whole game in 90 minutes, Mm -hmm. you're now taking advantage of your opponent and taking away from their experience. So if you can't play that quickly or you can't get to that point, maybe change your list. Mm -hmm. You know, just because you want to play a certain way doesn't mean that the tournament has to accommodate that. Nor does your opponent, really. I mean, there, there's a social contract here, but there's also competition rules. And chess clocks have absolutely made the tournament scene, I think, better than, than they've heard it, far and away. Yes. Yeah. It's not to say you can't play 300 models, but know that you are going to have to go quickly, and you're going to have to do everything you can to finish those games quickly. And if you're running out of time on turn two, and then your opponent keeps winning all their games because you timed out and they didn't, you can't complain about that. That's entirely on you. You're free to play whatever army you want, but you only get half the game. You don't get to take two-thirds or three-quarters of the time just because you chose to bring more models. That's not fair to your opponent. Nope. I think that covers most of the, the big hurdles that I see players running into at tournaments. There is, of course, lots more we can say about practicing and improving all that sort of things as well, but that's more than we can realistically fit into one episode, I think. Here's one, is if it's your very first tournament experience, make sure you've set aside time either the day after or right after to do something you know is fun, because that can be the thing that'll drive you to break the barrier of even trying and starting. Sure. That is definitely good advice for this sort of thing because at the end of the day like we are going to these tournaments to have fun there's a lot of things to enjoy about tournaments and you need to find what it is that make the tournament fun for you and do that yeah jt do you have anything you want to round this conversation out with be sure to to meet and talk to people don't don't necessarily um be afraid to i mean if you walked into a Back in the days before marriage, a singles bar and had so much in common with this many people, I mean, you'd be loving it. Mm-hmm. Um, really, there's so much you can talk about about the hobby in so many ways. I and mean, we barely touched on it here, but we could go on for hours and hours. Yeah. Also, traveling in your luggage in a double Ziploc bag, bring your super glue. Stuff's going to get broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But check that. Check that. In a double plastic bag. Trust me, it needs to be in two plastic bags. <laughs> You you don't want your entire luggage to be covered in super glue because that can happen and that will ruin your whole weekend. Yes, it did. 
So, if you have other questions, commentary, uh, you want advice on going to tournaments, or are looking for tournaments to go to, or whatever it may be, and would like to contact us in the podcast, we are in the finest hour at gmail.com, as well as in the finest hour on Facebook and Patreon. And if you want to throw a few bucks our way for that Patreon, we get you access to a nice little personal Discord chat, as well as a Facebook group where you can talk with the hosts and kind of see what's going on with them, post about whatever it is you're doing, and see what they're up to. That'll also get you access to the Crosstalk episodes about a month earlier than anyone else does. Yep. And speaking of tournaments and events, we have a couple big ones coming up here. Next week is Bay Area Open. It's three full days now, full LVO format. I will be there. Unfortunately, Shailene is going to miss it this time. Uh, JT, are you making BAO this year? You betcha. Bringing the whole family. They're going to do Alcatraz and the zoo, and it's going to be good. Nice. Yeah. So if you are going to be at BAO, go ahead and check us out. I th- we will have our shirts by then. Awesome. So Sean will be wearing a black shirt with giant green hourglass symbols on it. I'm only going to wear that shirt one day because I don't hate everyone. <laughs> I bet JT will show up with a purple shirt that says Imperial Pimps Oh, most likely, yes I will also, the week following that be at the Curse Was Right GT up in Bremerton, Washington mm-hmm. uh, a little bit smaller event but still looking like it's going to be a pretty good time and then as we get towards the end of June, I will be out in Hawaii for the Throne of War GT JT, do you have any other events you're going to be at that people can see you around? Yeah, we've got a, on June the 8th, there's a, an event in Kelowna, which is the the northern extension of the desert that runs through the middle of uh, Washington, Oregon, California. That's aiming to be a GT event. I think it's called Amiable Bright. On June 22nd, uh, we have a charity event that we're running. Our good friend, Finley Craig. Oh, is running Toss Your Cavers. All the funds that we raise are going to um, they're going to support uh, local homeless shelters and warming centers. Uh, it's a society called the Lookout Society. So we raise a lot of money over the two days. There's 40K, there's 30K, there's Kill Team, there's Epic, believe it or not. So that's going to be on June 22nd. Um, almost sold out, but uh, but if you're north and you can't get to Bremerton, well, you know, we're not that far. Uh, three hours north of Seattle, so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I was really sad I was going to have to miss that one, but it fell right alongside Throne of War there, and I was sponsored into that one, so I couldn't really turn it down. Yeah, Hawaii versus Vancouver. I mean, that's a tough call, Sean. <laughs> so, I would like to, as a uh, final little token here, say thank you to Dank Muse for providing all of the music for us. He does our intros and outros, and he has some pretty funky stuff. Check him out either on YouTube or on one of his other channels, where you can all see links through there. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow, who does the amazing art for our iconography and banners. Mm-hmm. You can find him on Facebook or by contacting us. We'll hook you up with him. JT, what would you like to plug? Uh, I'd actually like to thank both of you for having me on. It was a lot of fun, and I, I appreciate you guys moving your record schedule up so that I can go teach some guys how to not play Grey Legion in a minute here. But I want to just uh, plug the the new channel that we have, Play on Tabletop. We're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, um, I think we're on Twitter too. But Play on Tabletop is a different take on bat reps. We did the Wet Coast GT final table edit, uh, posted that a few days after it was out. But we're different. We want to inspire people to play and we don't think you need to sit there for three hours to watch a battle report. By this time, by the time this hits, we should probably have a couple more videos up. Uh, but play on tabletop uh, on YouTube. Um, come check us out. It's uh, it's 40k, but it's a little different. Yeah, yeah, you guys did a fantastic job with the wet coast edit. I I thought that was a really really smart way to do things because yeah, three hours is a lot, but you know that 40 minutes to an hour is a lot more achievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, JT said he did let me come up and play some games up there in the middle of the week. Since I get four days off, I could make a trip. That would be cool. That would be super cool. So, before we finish the episode here, let's do a couple listener questions. Shailene, would you like to read them out for us? Sure. We'll start with uh, one that had to get cut in editing, but I'm going to bring back. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite color? Blue. No, yellow. (laughs) Okay, seriously, what is your favorite color? I'm a big fan of purple. It's a really good color. It looks good on a lot of models. Guess what, JT? You get to answer this question, too. Uh, guess what? Sean already took my answer. <laughs> Purple's the best color. Everyone knows it. I am fond of purple and yellow. 
Interesting. Ooh, yellow. Okay. Those were my two favorite colors from childhood, and I will have two, so dang all of it. All right, what else we got? Talon writes, how do you decide what ones were worth your time to attend in regards to events? I mean, my answer is to go to everything. Um, That's also my answer, work permitting now. I like going to really big events because there's more people there, they're worth more ITC points, there's more folks to talk to, there's more competition. That's what I get out of a lot of those events, and that's why I like going to them. But that's not necessarily what everyone wants. I usually go to the events Sean goes to because I like saving money. That certainly counts for a lot. Being close to us obviously matters a lot. I usually try to structure my events to, to maximize my single faction points. So as many big events to to score in my faction. There you go. Yeah. Okay, last one. This is from Eleanor, because she's awesome. How do you keep track of competitive progress? I think that's really a matter of what are you trying to progress. Um, If it is your ITC score and rankings there, obviously you have a pretty easy metric. Mm -hmm. But if it is your skills and things like that, you can look at who you're playing, how you're winning, and that sort of thing, and how you do at games. Because if you can say, like, oh, you know, a year ago I might have made this mistake, but now I don't, that's, that's a very obvious way to notice your progress. The way I keep track of progress is I usually work on things in groups like, okay, I am working on blank this month. I will kind of try to assess myself at the beginning and then I will work on it and talk to people about it, do what I can there. And after the end of the month, I will say, how far have I come? Sub goals. Yeah. You know, if you've seen me sitting down having a beverage after a tournament, um, I'm replaying every single game that I just played in my head. And often I'll take notes on my tablet or even hand scroll some notes about things that came up, things that I didn't do right, things that I think I can do better. And I'll, I'll keep those and I'll go over them. And that way I know what I can work on. But I think tracking what you've done and, and remembering it and playing it over and playing it over is how can I do this better? It actually really helps me when I come into those situations later. So learning from my mistakes and being honest that, man, I blew that all the heck, didn't I? <laughs> it really comes in handy. Yeah. And yeah, Josh has talked a lot before about the value of taking notes on your games. It can definitely be very useful. Mm -hmm. So I think that closes out for the episode. So thank you very much, JT, for being on with us. It was a blast having you here. And it was really great seeing you at Wet Coast a couple weeks back. Thanks, guys. Great seeing you too, Sean. (laughs) So I hope everyone has found this to be useful. Next week, we'll be talking about playing from behind... So until then, I'm Sean Warren, Shailen Allen, JT, the painkiller McDowell, and this has been In the Finest Hour.